You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As usual, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And I'm Prashant Parameswaran from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing, Ankit? Doing great. It's good to be back with you, as always. Uh, for our listeners, this week's episode will focus on Indonesia. Specifically, we'll be talking about the Jakarta governor's race, uh, which is quite interesting given um, a bit of recent political history in the country involving uh, the governor of Jakarta, the incumbent, uh, who's known as Ahok, whose full name is Basuki Chahaja Purnama. Um, as some listeners may know, Indonesia saw major protests in November by hard um, Islamists who had taken offense at something that Ahok had said in jest, referencing the Quran. And more broadly, when you read commentary on uh, this episode in Indonesian politics, you've seen a lot of um, panic about the nature of Islam in Indonesia starting to change. Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim country, uh, a constitutionally secular democracy as well. Uh, 203 million Indonesians identify as Muslim, according to its 2011 uh, census, which is about 87% of the population. And uh, 99% of those are uh, Sunni Muslims, with uh, just the remainder being uh, Shia, mostly around the Jakarta area, um, but it's a very small minority. Um, so Prashant, uh, you know, you wrote about this recently for The Diplomat, um, referencing specifically Ahok's uh, early early win in the first round of the local election in Jakarta. So, you know, I'm hoping we can talk about a few of these topics, uh, specifically, you know, what happened with the Ahok episode? Are the fears about Indonesian Islam changing into a more... Um, into a more harder form of Islamism that you sometimes will observe in the Middle East, for example, are those fears justified? Um, and hopefully, we can get to a few other characters in the Indonesia governor's race, uh, notably Anis Baswedan, uh, who's Ahok's um, opponent, uh, and talk a bit about Indonesian politics more broadly. Uh, does that sound good? Sounds good. All right, great. So why don't you start us off? I mean, uh, you're really the expert here since you watch Indonesian politics a lot more closely than I do. Um, so tell us a bit about you know what happened with Ahok initially to cause these um, protests with tens of thousands of people in Jakarta. Yeah, um, so it, it just to contextualize it, and I think you you teed this off really well uh, uh, on Kit. Um, the sort of broad context is you have Ahok, who's a Christian, ethnically Chinese, reform-minded governor. Um, and sort of the broader context in Indonesia is, you know, the world's most populous Muslim-majority country, third-largest democracy, um, and, and essentially the controversy was already quite a controversial, polarizing figure, very uh, very honest and straightforward, and uh, that tends to alienate uh, some of his opponents already, but the specific issue that he's faced is the so-called uh, blasphemy case. Um, and essentially, the con to the fact that um, Ahok um, at one point uh, sort of mentioned that uh, some of the his opponents had referred to a Quranic verse uh, that's called Almighty 51 uh, that warns Muslims against taking Jews and Christians uh, as their allies, and that's interpreted. Uh, by a few to mean not having leaders from these religious groups as well. Um, and essentially that got misinterpreted and uh, some, of, some of his opponents deliberately painted this as being Ahok saying that you know, the Quran is inaccurate and undermining uh, Islam. 
when actually what Ahok was saying was that you know his opponents were using this verse against him. He wasn't criticizing the Quran. He was just pointing out that mm-hmm. you know there are people who are using this. So essentially, that got blown up into an issue where um, some of these more fringe, hardline Islamist groups questioned uh, Ahok uh, in terms of his criticism of Islam, and then started questioning Indonesia's political and religious leaders uh, in terms of you know can you allow a person like this to run for Jakarta governor and potentially be elevated to the presidency. Essentially, that's what's happened with Jokowi, who was former governor, and he was eventually elected to office. Um, And so this so-called blasphemy controversy has been added to uh, the Jakarta governor election, which, as you pointed out and alluded to earlier, um, is already a, a sort of highly contested election, right? As I mentioned earlier, the Jakarta... Since Jakarta is Indonesia's capital, it's sort of seen as uh, one of these places where you get elevated to national politics, and that's what happened with Jokowi. But in this particular race, you also have Ahok running against uh, two other individuals, right? The first is first being the son of uh, former president uh, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyuno, um, and the second being um, Anis Baswedan, who I think we'll we'll talk about uh, later a little bit more, um, who was Jokowi's former minister who now is allied with um, Jokowi's rival in the former Indonesian election, uh, Prabowo. And, and, you know, if you're confused, uh, you know, this is (laughs) for for our listeners. I mean, this this is kind of, you know, how Indonesian politics goes. I mean, you really have shifting alignments, uh, shifting political parties. um, And that's essentially what we have here. So it's really different layers. You know, you have layers of politics, you have religion. You have political parties, and you also have Ahok's personality as a candidate. That really makes it a unique situation here. Right. Um, no, that's a great summary. And I think, uh, you know, for listeners, I mean, we are going really in the weeds into Indonesian politics, which is kind of fun since it's not something we regularly do on the podcast. Um, but Prashant, you know, I mean, uh, you point out that um, this controversy was, um, you know, politics as usual, essentially. His opponents uh, twisted his words, manufactured a a scandal out of thin air. Um, but, you know, but then you observe, I mean, tens of thousands of people in the streets uh, holding up signs, calling for a hoax ouster. I mean, it, it, it really, I mean, you see this sort of public form of anger um, that's really, uh, you know, taken over Jakarta recently. And, you know, that obviously, I, th- I don't think, you know, you can set that aside as, uh, you know, I mean, you know, it, it might still be manufactured, but that is real anger, even if it's perceived, um, even if it's perceived anger based on something that's otherwise false. So, I mean, how do we interpret these protests more broadly? I mean, is Jakarta, is Indonesia starting to reckon with a more, um, with a more polarizing, with a more hardline form of Islam from its, um, from its traditionally more moderate um, version, or or is this uh, something that you think is still um, being a little bit overblown with the scandal? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's that's a good point, and I think that's essentially what most people are struggling with. You know, how did uh, a controversy over a sort of you know very uh, specific interpretation of a Quranic verse get blown up into a situation where uh, you have it influencing an entire election, and you have protests where uh, I think one of the protests was actually the largest single uh, religious gathering um, in modern Indonesian history. So this is a pretty significant phenomenon. I think. Um, part of that uh, has to do with how you interpret the broader controversy and the role of various forces. I mean, I think what I would say in general is um, the debate uh, has central uh, has been uh, centralized around one 
uh, topic of conversation, which is to what extent is this, as, as you pointed out earlier, a litmus test for Indonesian democracy and Indonesian uh, Islam, political Islam in the country. Um, and I think for some, this, this is a clear test. I mean, you have essentially uh, a double minority candidate, right? He's both Christian and Chinese running for office in you know, the world's most populous Muslim majority country. Um, and you have him uh, being accused of blasphemy by radical Islamists and other vested political interests. So this is you know, a key test for, for Indonesia. I think for, you know, my own interpretation is that um, this is not really the litmus test that, that people are referring to and, and sort of making it out to be. I think um, I would point out to sort of two or three factors. One is you know, Ahok's own personal vulnerabilities as a candidate. I mean, the fact is Ahok was already a pretty controversial figure. There were already protests that were organized by fringe, uh, hardline Islamists. They were not to the level that we've seen, absolutely. Um, this has sort of brought it to a different level um, because essentially you had a, a Quranic verse being taken into sort of uh, an, an issue of, you know, who supports Islam and who doesn't, who's the guardian of the religion and so on and so forth. Um, but it also, you know, it, this was a, a uniquely polarizing uh, controversy. I mean, uh, the... Usually the, the controversies in, in Indonesia with respect to minority candidates, I mean, you will have uh, groups like the Islamic Defenders Front um, sort of talk about interpretations of the Quran and, you know, this candidate is not, you know, is going to be harmful to Islam. But by challenging uh, a verse that related to the Quran, I mean, Ahok really turned this into an issue of, you know, as a minority candidate, challenging the majority religion in the country. So that kind of elevated the controversy a little bit and in fact it, it that make you know i would argue makes it less of a litmus test than than other cases because this is a uniquely polarizing case right i mean it, there have been cases where indonesians have elected other non-muslims despite similar campaigns run against them right so and i think the the third thing um which we've been talking about is i mean this is really high stakes here I mean, you have the, the son of a former Indonesian president and you have the loser of the former uh, presidential election where Jokowi was running, uh, running against Ahok. I mean, so you have really powerful uh, political groups here. And there's been suspicions that, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who showed up to these rallies, sometimes tens of thousands, mm -hmm. uh, that some of these folks have been paid. Right. Uh, to do this. And obviously, these allegations go on back and forth, and it's impossible to empirically verify these things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, w the point is, we, we have a lot of forces here at work, and we, and naturally, we'll have a debate as to what is the weightage that we should assign to all of them, you know? Yeah, no, and, it, you know, like, one of the reasons I'm glad that we're talking about this in the weeds political stuff is, I think, you know, just given the global context with everybody worried about the Islamic State, everybody kind of, uh, you know, if you ask people what their primary frame of reference is for blasphemy becoming a major political issue, they might tell you about a place like Pakistan, you know? I mean, where uh, last year you saw major protests over um, the murder of Salman Tassir, um, and I think, you know, people also saw that as a litmus test for the country becoming um, very different. So I think maybe, you know, some people are bringing those frameworks to Indonesia um, around these protests tests, which have gotten quite a bit of international attention um, without analyzing some of these underlying factors that you discussed. 
Um, I want to ask you also about um, another another actor uh, that we haven't uh, talked about directly yet, which is the Islamic Defenders Front, the FPI in Indonesia, um, which is a, a really hardline uh, group uh, promoting political Islam, which has been at the center of this controversy. In fact, I think they were the ones who were primarily involved with bringing this to national prominence. Is that right? In the beginning? Yep, that's right. Um, so, you know, they have about 200,000 members, which is quite small when I said, you know, Indonesia has 203 million Muslims more overall. So it is quite a fringe group. But what's interesting is that, uh, you know, I mean, recently, um, Anis Baswedan, who is, uh, you know, he's been long been talked about as, as a sort of young reformer in Indonesia, uh, hailed by the World Economic Forum and all these groups. Uh, you know, he, he gave an address there in January. Um, and, you know, I wanted to ask you, Prashant, I mean, do you think that that's evidence of, uh, you know, even a moderate like Anis kind of changing his politics for, uh, given the high stakes here and given the expediency of appealing to that group, given the wide protests, or or do you think that, you know, this is going to be a broader trend of uh, moderates in Indonesian politics compromising their values to appeal to this now increasingly more influential constituency? Yeah, um, I, you know, that's, I think, the, the other big question that looms over all of this. And I think for perspective, I mean, you mentioned the the grouping of uh, the Islamic Defenders Front. You know, just for a contrast, you know, you have the two biggest Muslim organizations in Indonesia, Muhammadiyah and Nadlatul Ulama, right? Those two groups, they boast, you know, tens of millions of followers. So these, you know, the the Islamic Defenders Front, you know, is a very loud, vocal voice, but it's also a, a very fringe group, and they do protest uh, a lot. You know, you'll find them protesting bars, nightclubs, uh, and these big high-profile um, political events, too. With respect to Anis, I, I think you're, you're, you know, you're absolutely right that there has been a perception among um, some Indonesians, particularly you know, more younger, idealistic Indonesians, that he kind of sold out um, by mm-hmm. um, going towards the, the Islamic uh, Defenders Front, even though, I mean, to, to, not to defend his actions, but to just put it in proper context, you do have a trend where um, Indonesian candidates, um, Jokowi did this himself, I mean, he faced a lot of questions when he was running about whether he was a true Muslim and whether his family was uh, truly Muslim enough. And he tried to shore up his credentials too, you know, like um, emphasizing very publicly his how religious he was. Um, so you do have candidates having to sort of pass certain quote-unquote tests um, in terms of winning political support. I think the reason why it was more pronounced in Anis's case is because you're right, he was seen as this very moderate, progressive voice globally. So I think people were a little bit surprised when that happened. But I think that also speaks to the fact that you know, the fact that he had he felt he had to do that in order to win the election shows the willingness of Indonesian politicians to use these factors, identity politics, in order to win. I mean, uh, that's right. essentially what it uh, comes down to, you know. But in terms of whether this can be seen as a broader turn from, you know, mo- moderation away from radical uh, Islamic tendencies, I would say... The bigger worry is that in this case, the, the and interesting to talk about is, you know, within uh, a lot of these controversies, you usually have the bigger Muslim groups we talked about, Nadlatul Ulama and Muhammadiyah. They usually come in and they sort of intervene and they say, no, this this radical interpretation doesn't make sense and we should unite around this area. In this particular controversy, because it was so polarizing um, and it related to the verse in the Quran and Ahok himself was a controversial figure. And there are a lot of politics involving these organizations. You didn't see a unified voice from these organizations. You had some divisions there. And that provided an opening for the Islamic Defenders Front and these fringe radical folks to get more of traction 
than they otherwise would. So that I think is a potential concern for for Indonesia. Right. No, and you know a lot of these things that you mentioned about politics, I think, are are quite global and definitely not uh, unique to Indonesia. You see these in um, in democracies everywhere. I mean, you know, um, you see this in India, for example, with religion and politics as well. Um, and or, you know, maybe or, even in the United States and the West as well, with the with Christian groups and candidates having to uh, you know pass certain tests. <laughs> Yeah, or even right across in, in Malaysia, too, you know, where mm-hmm. you and I mm-hmm. have lived, you know, and sort of observed politics there. I mean, it really is kind of aligned in the sense. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just, uh, you know, before we kind of wrap this up, Prashant, I just want to ask you kind of, um, you know, since we're on this topic, we're talking about um, radical Islam, which I guess is a popular term these days in, in certain parts of the world. Um, and, you know, I mean, there is this context with Indonesia. I mean, there was a terror attack last year, which I think surprised a lot of people um, since, you know, Indonesia obviously suffered at the hands of Jemaah Islamia earlier in the 2000s, but things had been quite quiet for a while. And last year in January, uh, the Islamic State struck, um, it was a low casualty attack with just five people killed. But I think it kind of spooked people. Um, you know, I, I think at the time, again, a lot of commentary coming from people who weren't necessarily Indonesia's um, specialists saw, uh, you know, this country of 200 million Muslims uh, seeing an Islamic State attack as a potential sign of Indonesia potentially turning into a, um, a major problem uh, in the region for, for terror. And, you know, I mean, as of late, I mean, with the campaign on Mosul intensifying, there's been a lot of worry about foreign fighters more broadly returning to um to asia i mean across asia south asia southeast asia um, indonesia included um but you know more broadly prashant i mean where um how do we you know make sense of where things stand right now with um with some of these threats that people have been worrying about with regard to uh, terrorism in indonesia and uh the possibility for the islamic state to really pick back up there yeah so i think uh you know this if you talk to indonesian defense officials they'll say you know along with uh fake news uh the Islamic State is up there in terms of the major threats that that Indonesia faces. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind, obviously, that Indonesia in general is a pretty moderate place. And when you're talking about Indonesians going abroad to join ISIS uh, in the Middle East, there's you know uh, you know 500, 600, maybe you know sort of a bigger group of sympathizers in Indonesia, maybe about a thousand, a thousand five hundred. But uh, you know this this attack. Uh, that happened last year was was a major sort of wake up call for Indonesia, and since then, there have been bigger calls for Indonesia putting more funding into de-radicalization uh, programs and efforts, um, doing more to address questions of what to do with prisoners when, once they're already in prison. Because one of the big trends in Indonesia is once folks go into prison, radicalization happens in these prisons too because they're very poorly policed. Um, so you, it is a major threat, I think, uh, in Indonesia. Um, uh, that being said, though, I, I think you, with terrorism, you always have the case where, you know, as the threat rises, um, you have very capable states uh, in Southeast Asia as well, including the Indonesian government, that will also raise their game in response to this. And I'll, I think you'll see a continued sort of struggle uh, between the two sides. And, you know, you, you, you sort of see the similar uh, thing with respect to some of these South Asian cases too, right, Ankit, whether right. it's uh, Pakistan or, or whether it's India. And, you know, we've, we've also talked about this in respect to, to Malaysia and some of these other cases too. Um, I think the, the bigger point that you noted about the relationship between the Middle East and what's going on there uh, and some of these returnees back to these Southeast Asian states is, is also a big concern. So I'm glad you brought that up because this, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, Southeast Asia and the Middle East are not insulated from each other. It's all sort of broadly related in a, in a general sense. So. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I think the it was just announced that the Saudi king will be uh, visiting Indonesia soon. Um, 
Yeah. And I and I think it was actually notable. Uh, it struck me that you know one of Jokowi's cabinet secretaries, uh, Anung, told uh, he told Reuters that he hopes the Saudis will promote moderate Islam in in Indonesia through religious yeah. teaching and exchange programs for scholars, which is you know not what the Saudis are known for necessarily. Um, yeah, but I but I found that quote interesting in the context of kind of all of this stuff that we've been talking about. All right, so I think we'll uh, leave it there, Ankit. Sound good? Yeah, sounds good to me. Yeah. Um, so to our listeners, uh, thanks for joining us. And, and just your friendly reminder to subscribe if you like what you're hearing and leave us a review. Uh, and uh, if you have any suggestions for topics, particularly things that we haven't covered, uh, even obscure topics, uh, let us know and we'll try to incorporate that into our podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us and thanks, Ankit, for joining me.